Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Episode 130 of The Bowery Boys. Haunted Histories of New York. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. I, my voice has gone back to normal there. Yeah, you s- very s- sounded very possessed there for some reason. Yeah, my, my eyes had rolled back into my head. Well, this is our fifth, can you believe, fifth annual Ghost mm-hmm. Story podcast. We began with ghost stories, went to spooky stories, haunted tales, supernatural stories, and now haunted haunted hi- <laughs> haunted, <laughs> haunted histories. Ugh. Well, that keeps happening to both of us. Would you like another donut, Greg? We yeah. once again we're setting the mood here in the studio. Greg put up some really nice little orange twinkle lights. I don't know. You always seem to find this, I don't even know. with a move. You knew where the, the haunted <laughs> lights were. I have all my holiday lights in a big tin. Easy to find. Um, yeah, we have donuts. We have apple cider. We're working ourselves up here because we have four brand new, very frightening ghost stories that have at the heart of them, of course, true stories based in New York City history. What's fun about tonight's tales, Greg, is that they're from different eras in the city. So we'll be going back hundreds of years, and then we'll just be going back, well... Just a few. I have my... Final story will culminate in a very frightening event that happened just a few years ago. And the stories are also spread out through New York, taking place in at least three different boroughs. Because ghosts know no borders, no bridges, no tunnels. So without further ado, I want to get this started. I already have chills up my spine here just thinking about these. So let's leap in to these haunted histories of New York. That, Tom, is the theme from the 1979 film The Amityville Horror Ah, with James Brolin, Margot Kidder, you know, the flies, all the flies. That's based on a book that was written in 1977, alleged to be based on true events. Now, at the core of it was an actual crime that took place in Amityville, New York. That's on the south shore of Long Island, so about an hour drive from where we're at right now. 
at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville. In November of 1974, the DeFeo family was brutally shot and killed in their sleep by the oldest brother, Ron DeFeo Jr. The very next year after that crime, the Lutz family moved into that Ocean Avenue home. They bought it for a super cheap price, and they even had the furniture of the dead family that was purchased as part of the arrangement. Now, the Lutz family reportedly experienced supernatural activity almost immediately. Disembodied voices, flies, blood dripping from the wall. There was even a figure of a demon, its face in the fireplace. Now, while trying to bless the house with the crucifix, the family heard a chorus of voices squealing and screaming, saying, Will you stop? Well, the family soon moved from that house Obviously. and turned it into a box office success in 1979 and a you know, series of sequels and remakes. Now, I mention this because this story, although it doesn't take place in New York City proper, has some parallels to some of the stories that we are about to talk about, especially this theme of a building being imprinted with past crimes and having the sort of spirits of that crime transcend to other generations and affect them. We'll tell you the legends. We'll tell you some of the alleged hauntings of these particular places. We will even dismiss... A few popular urban legends around some of these places. And we'll promote other urban legends. (laughs) And create our own for future generations. And like always, Tom has two stories. I have two stories. Neither of us know what we're going to talk about. We only know that we haven't repeated each other. Because that would be very unfortunate. Yes, it would. It would be ghastly. So let's get these ghosts astirring. I believe you should start because I think one of your stories actually starts chronologically the earliest. I'm going to take us, Greg, out to Liberty Island or Bedloe's Island, as it was known. So the home of the Statue of Liberty is indeed haunted? You can make that decision for yourself. I will tell you that tourists flock every day, of course, to the island to visit the 305-foot-tall statue unveiled in October of 1886. We have another Bowery Boys podcast about that. And we went into great detail about the construction of the statue, the framework, even the base. But what about the island itself? Today, we call Liberty Island, was originally referred to as Bedloe's Island. That was the original name. So long before the statue of this robed woman stood there, the island was home to Fort Wood, which was a military fort shaped like an 11-point star. Mm -hmm. So the Statue of Liberty today is actually set above the filled-in walls of the old Fort Wood. And it's those walls that we'll be focusing on today for our stories, or more precisely, the rocky shores just outside those walls. So the Statue of Liberty could be standing on a foundation of horror. Could be. But we're more concerned with what's outside that foundation. But I'm going to tell you first about a captain named Captain William Kidd. Captain Kidd. The famous Captain Kidd. Not, nothing to laugh about. Right. No kidding. Lived from 1654 to 1701, born in Scotland, and he settled in New York, where he lived for four years. He lived on Pearl Street, actually. In quite a nice house. Uh Uh-huh. Facing, yeah, facing into the harbor. He made great connections here. He was friends with three different governors of New York and even had his own pew 
at Trinity Church. He was also one of the most notorious 17th century figures in New York City. He was accused of piracy up and down the Atlantic Ocean. And However, we're not going to get too deep into these waters because debate rages today about whether or not he really was a pirate or whether or not he was just a privateer. He would end up being prosecuted in London and being hanged in 1701. And after his death, word spread fast that Captain Kidd had left behind a vast and buried treasure somewhere along the eastern seaboard. Of course, there were all manner of tales about where this could be, and people went on great digging expeditions. There was also a group, though, around New York City who was certain, because he had lived here, of course, right. that he had buried a lot of booty right around New York. Well, it would make sense he would bury it perhaps even within sight of his old house on Pearl Street. Mm-hmm. So what if you're looking out in the water from this particular place, one might have seen Bedloe's Island. Even 125 years later in the 1820s, people were still whispering about where Captain Kidd's fortune might be buried. So there was a Sergeant Gibbs, who we don't know that much about, but he was in the 1820s assigned to Fort Wood, and he'd been working there for a couple of years. A new recruit had come up to him, a private named Carpenter. He was a private carpenter. A private carpenter on Fort Wood. Yes. And this private carpenter worked up the nerve to approach Sergeant Gibbs and share with him the sense that he had that there was a fortune buried somewhere on the island. He had heard the rumors himself. So they needed a plan. They needed more information about this. So what did they do, of course? They got permission to leave Fort Wood, head into the city, which at this point would have been the lower part of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Just a boat ride over. And visit a psychic. And I love thinking about an 1820s psychic in Lower Manhattan. Yeah, what does that entail? Probably sitting in somebody's small, dark office, maybe gazing into a crystal ball. And the fortune teller asked them, is it true? I I sense that there's a flat rock someplace around Bedloe's Island. Well, yes, there was. They They were both familiar with this flat rock. It was on the north side of the island. But it was only accessible when there was a low tide. Hidden from sight most times, right? Of course, Mm -hmm. which made perfect sense. Of course, that would be a natural place for a smart sea captain to Mm -hmm. hide his booty. So the fortune teller told them to wait for a full moon, then head out to the shore of the island armed with a witch hazel divining rod. Wow. So is that like the Y, like a a Y-shaped stick, I believe? Okay. That you sort of carry, you pass over the ground and you wait for a sign. Usually it it goes up or I think it goes down. Mm -hmm. So they, they had to take their divining rod out at the full moon and look for the exact spot where they should dig. So they waited and they waited for that full moon. And this had to remain their secret because, of course... They wanted to keep the treasure. People might have thought they were crazy for thinking that it might be buried here, and they didn't want to share the money if it was there. It was also a bit of a risky undertaking because, of course, it was outside the walls, the fortified walls, which they were probably not supposed to (laughs) jump over. Finally, a full moon. It was midnight. And the soldiers snuck out of the barracks. They climbed over a ladder that they had placed over a ditch outside the wall, and they snuck past some soldiers who were lining the walls. They were armed with the the divining rod and with one lantern, and they looked over at the shoreline. The tide was low. They snuck silently past the soldiers. They headed to that large, flat rock that they could now spot. They guided their rod over and around the shoreline, looking for a sign around the rock. With the only light being that of the full moon reflecting down onto the water and maybe the barest lights from the city across the harbor. 
And then it dropped. The rod dropped to the ground, fell to the rocks, and the soldiers knew that they'd been given a sign. They were standing on top of the captain's buried treasure. By the light of the lantern, the men pulled aside the rocks and started digging through the sand. Within a couple of feet, with waves crashing not far from where they were crouched, they dug a few feet. And past the sand, they hit ground. Dirt. And they kept digging. Another five feet or so past the dirt when, clank, their shovel hit the side of something solid. Of course, they dug all around it, unearthing a chest, and there was something else there, though. Just next to it was a skeleton. There was a body. They wanted to scream, of course, but they didn't want to attract any attention to themselves. And then they realized that, well, the body was probably that of a guard, because legend had it that pirates, when they would bury their treasures, would also kill one or two of their men to serve as guards. So even after death, the men would be guarding the pirate's booty. The men positioned themselves to haul up the chest, breathless to see what was inside, when all of a sudden there was a giant flash, flash of white light. Everything went white. They felt a certain pressure that shook them, and they both saw an unearthly figure, a a sort of man. The figure, demonic, rose up from the hole and hovered about on the ground, breathing sulfuric fumes. So this... So this entity, this apparition, has risen from this hole that normally would be underwater anyway during low tide. We have only the light of the lantern and the moon here to illuminate this this ghastly shape. Gibbs let out a scream, which of course caused a commotion, which was unfortunate for them. They were trying to not attract any attention. And when the guards came over, they arrived right away. Gibbs was passed out in a pool of the water that was gathering around them, and Carpenter was caught running away from the hole. They were taken, of course, immediately to the sergeant-at-arms to be reprimanded because they had snuck outside of the fort, and they were doing something very unusual, digging a hole and looking for treasure. The situation was most unusual, and of course they told the sergeant-at-arms what had happened, and that they were sure that they had just also seen the ghost and witnessed the ghost of a dead pirate. Their stories were slightly different when they were questioned individually. Like they had seen different things, almost, from this apparition. Yes. Gibbs said that the demon was big with horns and had wings on its shoulders. And Carpenter, though, said it was red and didn't have any wings or horns, but that it was floating around. Regardless, they had seen and experienced something really strange. And when the sergeant and the guards and the two men went back to the hole, the skeleton and the chest had vanished. Now, this story persists today. People are still seen sometimes wandering around the north side of Liberty Island looking for a certain large, flat rock. I would suggest if you do find it in a full moon and a low tide, leave it alone. Well, I don't believe that tourists are allowed on the island at night. Maybe this is why. Mm. That is a true legend of New York City, if ever there was one. And and many of the details from that were actually published in a New York Times article written um, on August 14, 1892. Meaning that the story itself had been embedded by that time as a true urban folktale. If that helps you sleep, Greg, <laughs> that's fine by me. And that story was set around 1820, correct? Um, which is yes, very coincidental because the next my, the next story here actually begins around the 1830s. Mm. We're going to go across the water, but not to Manhattan. This story takes place in Brooklyn. 
Keep in mind at this period of time that Brooklyn, of course, isn't a borough. They don't exist yet for several decades. Brooklyn, in fact, would only be a, become a city in 1834, but we're not even going to be going to Brooklyn. We're going to be going a little further north to the independent village of Williamsburg. Well, that's a scary place. Well, indeed, the name of this story is The Holy Ghost. <laughs> Where it'll be set in a place that we don't often think of as being haunted, but in fact can be some of the most haunted places. That, of course, would be a church. In this case, the most holy trinity, Roman Catholic Church. Today, it's located on Montrose Avenue in today's neighborhood of Bushwick. The land in which this is all takes place, it used to be farmland of a man named Abraham Meserol. Today, if you're in that neighborhood, one block over from where the church is, is actually Meserol Street, which is named for this prominent Long Island family. Now, in the 1830s in Manhattan, the leader of the German Catholic Church was the father, Johann Raiffener. Raiffener wanted to open a Catholic church in Long Island to cater to all of these brand new Germans that came over. So he bought some of the land from Meserol in 1841 and built the very first version of Most Holy Trinity here. It was a wooden stone structure. It was very small. In fact, Father Raiffener himself slept in the basement of the church and would basically live and work in the church. How practical. Right next to that church was a small, very small cemetery. Now, during this time, of course, you know, we know what happens in the 1840s. New York receives so many new German residents. This church just explodes with attendance. Thousands soon attended Most Holy Trinity. Um, this flat, undeveloped area around the church soon sprang up with brand new tenements. So naturally, in 1853, they needed to expand this church. It wasn't big enough. And here's where things get a little twisted. They decided to build a new church. But they decide to build it on top of that land that had been the, the cemetery. cemetery. So the bodies were exhumed and they were moved to a new cemetery, the Most Holy Trinity Cemetery, which is actually still there today. They exhumed those bodies, placed them in the new burial ground. But you already have associated with this land this disturbing of rested souls. And some believe that not all the bodies were exhumed, and that some actually remained there when the second church was built on top. Mm. So that's the second church. The congregation soon becomes one of the biggest in Brooklyn, and they decide that they need a third expansion in 1882. It was between 82 and 85 that we get the, the present church structure that's there today. It's one of the Brooklyn's most famous, most beautiful churches, those two really bold spires. You can see them for miles. And considering we're talking Brooklyn, the borough of churches, to be one of the biggest and one of the greatest is certainly an accomplishment. So this is the third church that was built. The second church, which was built on top of that cemetery, well, they took that church down and they put up a Catholic school. So I don't like where this is So today's Catholic school that's there is on top of the old cemetery of the original church. Something else, however, lurks underneath old Miserable's farm here. Because there was, the church has had so many structures over this whole block for several decades here, there are actually a series of underground passages that connect some of these buildings. It's claimed that these passages were built to protect parishioners and the priests during the 1850s, during the years of all those anti-immigrant sure. sentiment, all those know-nothing like riots and everything that would people would retreat to the church and they would hide and be able to travel in these underground passages for safety. Now, these passages still exist today. 
people who visit the church and have gone there have reported opening closet doors and finding brick walls that once led to these passages that were commonly used back in the day. It's safe to say that the whole block may actually have these passages that link all the buildings together. Still today. Now, so you have a disturbed graveyard. You have underground tunnels. You must be asking, where are the ghosts? Well, Ravener died actually 150 years ago this year in 1861. He's buried in a crypt underneath the church. His successor was the Monsignor Michael May. And he had a nice, admirable run here at the church. He was, he was a well-loved man. During his proceeding, they built a church rectory next to Most Holy Trinity. So no longer did priests have to sleep in the basement. They had a rectory here that they could stay in and live in. Well, in 1895, Monsignor May actually died on the second floor of the church rectory. Thousands showed up for his requiem mass, and perhaps coincidentally, it was presided over by a deacon from the Congregation of Amity, New York. Just oh. coincidentally. Now, since then, so this is over 100 years ago, right? So 1895, well over 100 years. The room has been used for visiting priests. The yeah. room where he died. The room where he died on the second floor of the rectory. Resident priests refused to stay there. Visitors who have had to stay there and have, and have been in the rectory have reported hearing footsteps back and forth in the room. They will look up and they won't see anyone in the room. Sometimes those footsteps leave and walk up and down the steps. They often kept dogs in the rectory for protection. It's been repeatedly reported by several people that the animals would often be very obsessed with the stairway right outside of the Monsignor's old room, and they would stand there, frozen, looking up into the stairway. Because, of course, they're more sensitive. They can detect these things. Just staring up into the darkness as if something or someone was hovering there. But this isn't all, Tom. Two years later, on August 29th, 1897, there was a sexton named George Stells. He was in charge of ringing the church bell every Sunday. Stells bells? Stells bells, exactly. Stells was ringing the bells. On this particular evening, he was preparing the church, preparing the bells, when a thief broke in. It was actually one of the parishioners of the church itself. Brutally murdered Stells right here in the vestibule itself of the church. This crime made all the papers of the day, this search for his killer. They did end up finding someone and executing that person for another crime, but that person was never convicted of killing Stells. If you go to the church today, you'll find his name written underneath a stained glass window because he had donated that window earlier in his career there at the church. However, you may find different souvenirs on different evenings, blood on the wall from the crime in the vestibule where he was murdered. Sometimes this blood appears on the wall that leads up to the bell tower. The bells themselves often ring when no one is up in the bell tower to operate them. So we have two identifiable ghosts here. We have the Monsignor, and we have the Sexton Stells. Of course, let's bring back in that graveyard here, shall we? That adjacent school, of course, that sits on top of the former burial ground. There's so much supernatural activity that's alleged to go on here that the reappearance of the churchmen that keep happening, it may be explained as this restlessness of souls, this swirling of unsettledness. From this old cemetery. People have traced it all the way back to there. To this day, the lights in the gymnasium of the school go off and on, flickering. Students have reported seeing dark shapes of people in hallways, like at the very end of the hallway, when there's no one there. 
There's a constant shuffling. It sounds as if people are rushing down the hall. A teacher will open the door and there'll be no one there. The whole complex has been famously haunted for so long that a paranormal research team actually spent several days here in the basement of the building in some of these corridors. You know, think of poltergeists, these kind of paranormal... I don't know who these people are, these I'm research kind of teams. That they, that they were given access. The church seems to have a good attitude towards some of these stories. It's actually on their official website. You can really? even go there and get some more information. Well, this research team, paranormal research team, were in these catacombs for a few days and recording sounds in the crypt. And they had, of course, representatives of the church there. And they claimed to have recorded a voice... And they played it back to one of the priests who confirms that they heard it. And the voice said, I am Michael. Who is Michael? Michael May, the Monsignor. <sighs> now, just yesterday, Tom, I visited Most Holy Trinity. It was a really windy day with very low hanging clouds. It was just a very mysterious day to be walking into a haunted church. So I was able to get into, the front door was actually open, but the church itself, the main chamber is locked. But it's the vestibule where Stells himself was murdered. So you can go into that part of it. And so that's where I was standing. Underneath where I was standing are the crypts that contained both Reifener and Michael May. To the left of me was actually a locked door. I peered through the glass and it was a staircase that went up to another level. As I looked in there, the front door behind me slammed shut, and I felt that there was something strange there peering back at me on the staircase. I lasted 45, 50 seconds and got the heck out of there. So <laughs> if you'd like wow. to go visit the uh, Most Holy Trinity to worship uh, or just to visit it because it is a beautiful building, you can take the J&M train. Um, out to Bushwick. And the rest of the surrounding area is, of course, very quiet and residential, but there still may be spirits hanging around Most Holy Trinity. Well, Greg, I'm glad that everything turned out okay. <laughs> yes, thank you very you. much. And now I'm going to take us from church to vaudeville. <laughs> so you're going li to so lighten the mood. We've had a few haunted theaters on our past ghost yes, shows. We and we've talked about the Belasco, and we've talked about the New Amsterdam Theater. And so today, we're actually going to go to 47th Street and Broadway and talk about the Palace Theater, or the Palace Theater, as some people say. Now, it doesn't surprise me that there are so many haunted theaters. I mean, dramatic people would be equally as dramatic in the afterworld. Oh, absolutely. And the biggest drama queens around all played the palace. Everybody had to play the palace. Well, the theater itself opened in 1913 as a vaudeville house, and it was opened by the Broadway impresario and producer Martin Beck. He had a hard time opening the things because, as we discussed during our podcast about Tin Pan Alley, the way that vaudeville, which is a type of show that is comprised of various acts, from singers to comedians and acrobats and such. It's a variety show. A yeah. variety show. And the way that vaudeville, which was super popular during the early 20th century and up through the 20s, the way that the business worked is that there were these groups of theaters or circuits that were owned and run across the country. So somebody, a performer or an act, would work the circuit 
woodwork, say, in New York, and then go off to, say, Philadelphia or Pittsburgh or Cleveland and Chicago and work their way around, always performing in houses or theaters that were owned by the circuit. Now, one of the circuits, the Keith Circuit, one of the largest in the country, actually demanded three-quarters of the theater stock, of the palace's stock, in order for the right for Martin Beck to use acts from the circuit. So there was all of that like, kind almost of... Almost like criminal bribery going on just to operate in right. the busiest theatrical area in the world. Right. So if he wanted to open up this theater at 47th and Broadway, fine. But if he wanted the best acts out there, he had to give the circuit. So it struggled to get started here, is what you're saying, even though it's one of the greatest theaters in Broadway history. It had a rough time of it at first. After all of these payoffs and such, Beck was finally able to open up the palace in 1913. Two years later, in 1915, Sarah Bernhardt would perform at the palace, and really, that was the moment where the palace took off. She really set the reputation Well, she was probably the, the, the biggest legitimate star in terms of being a great stage dramatic melodramatic, some would say, actress. Other actors who would perform in those early days at the palace included Fred Astaire, Fanny Bryce, Enrico Caruso, Sophie Tucker, Rudolph Valentino, Will Rogers, and more. They produced two shows a day, which was quite a bit of work for the performers, but I suppose given the fact that it was this type of variety show, you know, they they had to do their act twice a mm-hmm. day, at least at the beginning, because then with the introduction of the movies and the popularization of the movies, and especially talkies, which would come in at the end of the 20s, audiences' appetites were changing. They were so enthralled with the movies that it was really kind of hard for these vaudeville theaters to compete. And of course, it was really expensive to put on these shows, as you can imagine. So in 1929, the palace added yet another performance. So they were now doing three shows a day, which put a little bit more strain on the performers. And three years later, in 1932, in the midst of the Depression, they added one more. So they were now doing four shows a day at the palace, and they lowered their admission price. But even with those concessions, they just couldn't compete. And it was in 1932 that the palace actually started showing movies as well and transformed itself over the next few years into a movie theater. Which so many theaters at this time in Times Square and The old do. palaces, yes. Best way to make money. Although sometimes there would still be some live performers who would be mixed in or just shows that would be live. One of those shows would make its audience witness something unexpected and terrifying. But we'll get to that in a second. But just to wrap up the palace's story, in the 1950s, they would try to revive uh, vaudeville. I don't know if you knew about this, but there was a movement to bring back vaudeville. And so Frank Sinatra and Judy Garland played at the palace in, in a vaudeville setting. And those shows were actually quite a success. But the times had changed, of course. And of course, now there was television as well. So the theatrical infrastructure had changed the way that a performer was meant to pass on to a theater in the next city. It had all changed. So they went back to movies. But by the mid-60s, in fact, in 1966, after a big renovation, the palace reopened as a legitimate Broadway theater. And remains that way to this day, correct? Absolutely. It reopened with Gwen Vierden in Sweet Charity. Well, that's a good way to kick it off, yeah, I'd say. <laughs> and I think at this point, this is the moment where we are the furthest from horror in this entire <laughs> thing when we're talking Gwen Vierden. So what is so haunting about this place? Because it sounds pretty jovial so far. 
with all of the divas who have graced the stage, it should come as no surprise that some of those spirits just don't want to leave. Take, for example, the cellist who appeared to Andrea McCardle. Would that be the stage's Annie? The stage is Annie, but many years later, in 1999, when she was performing in Beauty and the Beast, imagine Andrea's surprise when she looked down into the pit to see a phantom cellist performing in a white gown. There have also been the ghosts of children. There's a little boy who likes to roll his truck up in the balcony, roll back and forth. And there's a little girl who seems very sad, and she peers over the balcony rail. There have also been many reports of a woman's face peering out of a back door. The back door that was built specifically for Judy Garland when she was performing in the 50s so that she could escape out the rear of the orchestra and get in her car and blast off. Are you suggesting it could be a ghost of Judy Garland? Who's still peering out, looking for a quick escape. But none of these are really that scary. I mean, they just kind of hang around. In fact, I read that there are 100 ghosts that have been counted at the Palace Theatre. None of these, of course, are quite as dramatic as the ghost of Louis Borsellino. On August 17th, 1935, it was sort of during this transition period where they had started showing movies, but they were still doing live performances at the Palace. There was an audience of 800 people enjoying an afternoon's entertainment, the second show of the day. It was 4.30 p.m., and there was an acrobatic troupe on stage called the Four Casting Pearls. The reason that they were called the Casting Pearls is because they had a casting act. It was not actually an acrobatic act involving trapezes that would swing back and forth. The acrobats instead would swing off of bars that were mounted onto hangers, which were fixed onto the stage and from the rafters. And so off of these hangers, the acrobats would twirl and fly through the air. Trapeze-like. Yes, but they didn't move. Mm -hmm. Now for the climax of the casting pearls, one of these pearls, a 31-year-old man from Reading, Pennsylvania, named Louis Borsellino, swung off one hanger. He did his double somersault in the air, and was caught by another acrobat. That was his big finale. He did it several times a day. Very thrilling. On this August afternoon, however, 76 years ago, Lewis flipped off the bar, did a double somersault, reached for the hands of his partner, and missed. Before an audience of 800 people, Lewis plunged down to the stage at the palace. The crowd shrieked as he laid on the ground, And the palace pulled down the curtain. A sense of alarm spread through the crowd. What had they just seen? Trying to calm the crowd, the theater sent out the comedian Pat Henning, who went into his normal routine, trying to divert the palace audience's attention. Borsalino was critically injured in the fall. He was sent to Flower Hospital over at York and 63rd Street, which is now part of New York Medical College, where he was diagnosed with fractured pelvis and major internal injuries. And that's really all I could dig up. Those were the facts. Those are the facts. From a piece published the next day in the New York Times. Now, this has developed into quite a legend. The legend of this somersaulting acrobat. But what a horrible thing to have seen in person. Imagine all those people bringing that story back home with them and retelling that story. And soon, perhaps the real facts of the story make it slightly obscured. You could say slightly obscured. I mean, I saw several accounts have him actually falling off a tightrope and breaking his neck and dying on the stage. 
Regardless, though, this legend lives on, and according to stagehands at the palace, Borsellino has reappeared on the stage when the theater is empty, swinging from the rafters, perhaps trying again to make the landing. Others have repeated, when they peek through the peephole in the palace's curtains, that way up on the second balcony, they can spot the specter of a man swinging from the balcony. And in every case, the man always loses his balance, lets out a shriek, and plunges to the floor below. So it's no wonder that Judy Garland wants to get out of there. <laughs> he's seen swinging around, even though there, of course, aren't any bars or anything that he's holding on to. It's just this swirling figure in various places at the palace. Swirling and falling. I don't know what's playing at the palace now, but it sounds like this is a place I'd like to check out very soon. So we've looked for treasure, we've gone to church, and we've gone to the theater. Mm. And now it's time to go home. But the home that I'm about to describe is one that you would never want to live in. The name of this story is called The Tale of Two Houses. The place that I'm about to speak about is on Staten Island, a very haunted place. We've talked about the witch of Staten Island about three years ago in our Spooky Stories podcast. So we're returning to the borough for a tale that True TV has called one of the top 10 most haunted places in America. It's the only place in New York, by the way, that appeared on that list. So, wow. you know. Which, which TV? True TV, not Lifetime. True TV. True TV. Our destination for this final tale is the Kreischer Mansion at 4500 Arthur Kill Road. Now, as we've clarified, of course, this word kill is actually an old Dutch word for creek. But it's still appreciated when telling a scary ghost story. Oh, and it might be very appropriate with the Kreischer Mansion. I'm starting this tale with yet another German New Yorker, actually, just as a coincidence. He's a Bavarian businessman named Balthazar Kreischer. He arrived in New York in 1836. Now, if that rings a bell to you, he got here just a few months after the devastating Great Fire of 1835, oh, which happened right. around Christmas and destroyed hundreds of buildings and almost wiped out all of New York. This is very advantageous for Balthazar, for he was a brickmaker. And, of course, New York would need a lot, lot of new buildings to, to construct. So, of course, Balthazar got rich so quickly that he was actually able to support other German immigrants who began to come over at this time, including a loan of $75,000 into the pocket of one Heinrich Steinweg, also known as Henry Steinway, so that he could start his own piano manufacturing plant. Kreischer's daughter even married one of Steinway's sons, so they were two very powerful German families here in the mid-19th century. Now, Kreischer used the New York region's rich deposits of clay to make these bricks of his. He would get a lot of his clay from rural Staten Island, and in 1854, he would actually move his manufacturing plant there, the B. Kreischer & Sons Firebrick Manufactory. It made 20,000 bricks a day uh, and made a great many structures in the New York City area. He was so dominant in the region here in Staten Island, and there would be a little village that would form around the plant. It would actually be a little village called Kreischerville with a hotel, post office, 
All in brick. I mentioned Anne's sons here. He had seven children, including three sons. The oldest one, George, we'll come back into the picture here in a second, worked in Manhattan. The two youngest sons, who were born very close to each other, were named Charles and Edward. And they were involved in the operation of the brick plant. They were almost like twins. And their lives were indeed very, very parallel. For instance, Charles married a woman on June 19th of 1877. His brother who was two years younger, married that woman's younger sister on June 19th, 1879. So two years after his brother had married the woman's sister, if you can follow that. (laughs) Basically something that I don't think anyone would consider doing today. Um, But probably not creepy back at the time. uh, Probably not. Uh, And this was, in fact, this was even encouraged and continued by the father because in 1884, he built the brother two parallel houses that stood right next to each other, right here at this area of Staten Island, and very close to the brick plant. They were beautiful Victorian-style homes with turrets and large wraparound verandas, polygonal towers, and in front of them a man-made pond so they could go out and water their horses. And it's just a water feature that made it look very lovely. The houses were exactly identical with one twist. One of the houses was a mirror image of the other so that they could basically face one another but they were basically the same house with the two married couples that are two brothers and two sisters parallel brothers parallel lives parallel houses but not parallel fates there's so much misinformation by the way about the fate of Edward Kreischer here. One famous legend has it that the father Balthazar had a huge argument with Edward, culminating in that house burning down to the ground and them dying. This is a legend that has no basis, in fact. But as I'll get to, there's a lot of legends that circulate around this house for a particular reason. And Edward was the older one? Edward was the younger one. Okay. Now, Charles ended up moving on to uh, other endeavors and actually moving out of other houses. And to other houses. In 1893, the brick plant burned down and had to be rebuilt, and they had some very bad financial issues. By this time, Balthazar had died, so it was really on the shoulders, bricks on the shoulders here of poor Edward. He suddenly got very depressed, very, very despondent. There were some questions about what it was that had particularly made him so dour. He had had some disagreements with his older brother, George. But we're not sure if that was all that's what it was or if there was something a little bit more otherworldly on his shoulders. On June 8th of 1894, that morning, he said goodbye to his wife and he went down to the brick plant as usual. Many hours later, an errand boy from the brick plant ran an errand down to the water and found Edward's body. He had taken a gun and he had killed himself. Or as the New York Times article reporting the incident said, the fact that a revolver was found beside the body with one chamber empty is accepted as conclusive proof that he killed himself. That is 19th century forensics for you. (laughs) (laughs) And sarcasm. So Edward's widow remained in the house in mourning and lived there for the rest of her life. So this is the two houses. So this is the Edwards house. In 1930, that house is called the Wright House, the one that's on on the the right. right. Yes. Burned to the ground. Now that left only one house. That was the one that left. Yes. That left the left because Charles left the house. Exactly. Um, And that is the one that currently exists today. 
with all that was going on with Edward, there seemed to have been a lot of dark, malevolent events that seemed to take place here at Charles's old house. Something seemed to happen in the house at this point in the 1890s and in the early 20th century. Those who moved into the house after the death of Edward's widow and after that house had burnt down, people who had moved into the remaining house would sometimes hear the crying of a woman in a staircase or up in a hallway. People have suspected that this is the ghost of Edward's widow and truly that the houses were indeed parallel for what happened in the right house during life continued to happen in the left house after life. Another legend associated with this house is that one is the cook one day hung himself in the kitchen. Other tenants of this particular house have reported scratching sounds upstairs that emanate from a closet that was a child's room. It's believed that the Kreischers, or perhaps an owner afterwards, may have disciplined their child in very, very harsh ways by locking them in this closet. So this is one of the more popular and most experienced hauntings of the house, this scratching that happens in this particular room. Over throughout the whole 20th century, there's been all sorts of apparitions of wildly different shapes and sizes that have been seen in this house. Children growing up in Staten Island, of course, the area develops very rapidly, but this house remains and it's sort of the subject of a lot of urban legends at this time. And children, neighborhood children, there's lots of different stories that you'll read online about people recalling stories of like, when I was a kid, my parents said, you shouldn't be going to that house. That house is evil. Stay away from it. But of course, kids would always you know, venture in for a peek and scare themselves. Now, I'm going to flash forward to the 1990s here, oh. almost 100 years later, and it's pretty much abandoned for most of the period. In the 1990s, it was actually bought by a man named Joseph McBratney, who must have grown up with these stories because he had an actual interest in paranormal and considered himself a psychic. He bought the house with the idea of turning it into a restaurant. But he's like plugged into this psychic behavior anyway. So he thought, I mean, I don't know, but perhaps he thought this would be a fun theme. During the renovation of the house, he would stay here and he claims that he was visited by Edward's wife. One day while he was working on the house, this apparition appeared to him. He confronted the apparition because he's a psychic, I guess, and said, I am planning on keeping the house in its original style. I'm not going to change anything. I only have a request. If you could please, when my restaurant opens, if you could appear here on Friday night, <laughs> almost as if the ghost was some... giving her an engagement. <laughs> yes. Now, not surprisingly, she did not take him up on this offer. The ghost never did appear in the restaurant and the restaurant was actually later closed. He couldn't uh, he couldn't pay all of his bills. He but didn't have a ghost of a chance. Not a ghost of a chance. But McBratney here brings a new element into the myth. That would be the mob. McBratney's father, James, was murdered in a hit outside of a Staten Island bar. One of the assailants would be the later well-known mob boss, John Gotti. So there was a lot of mob Whoa. connections. And according to FBI records, claim that this was actually a meeting place for mob families, including the Gambinos, would meet at this particular rust haunted restaurant. Wow. So throw that into this mix, okay? You already have this charged atmosphere of a dark supernatural activities. So the house sat empty and was bought by a developer in the year 2000, and he planned to turn it into a clubhouse. It was falling apart, so he needed to hire a caretaker. So he hires a, a former Marine by the name of Joseph Young. Joseph also had mob ties, 
And, well, I'll give you a little hint of what he did for the mob. His MySpace page, because, you know, we're talking 2005. His, it takes us a little out of the ghostly. His MySpace page listed his occupation as death. Ooh. On March of 2005, Joe, with his mob connections, he was actually a contracted killer. A hitman. A hitman, correct. He was contracted to take out a man named Robert McKelvey. A robber had fallen out of favor with the local crime bosses. Robert was lured to the Chrysler Mansion here in March of 2005. Once he got inside, Joe was there with several other associates waiting for him. Joe walked up to him, stabbed him, and they tried to strangle Robert. He somehow managed to get away, but he's bleeding and he's severely injured. So McKelvey ran outside, and he's trying to escape. They're chasing after him. It's almost like a horror film because he's being stalked at this point. Joe catches up with him, and right there in front of that man-made pond, Joe takes Robert and drowns him in the water. Joe and his associates then take Robert's body and drag it behind the shed. And they go to the store, and they buy all sorts of manner of nasty tools, saws, drip claws. They return back to the house. They move the body to the kitchen, and they chop it up there in the kitchen, the very place where... A cook had allegedly hung himself 100 years ago. They then went down to the basement and they took these body parts and they threw it into a furnace and turn up the furnace and for hours stew it so they can burn it down to just ashes and bones. And then they take those ashes and bones and they hid it in a septic tank back behind the house. Now, regardless of covering up this absolutely horrible crime, it was eventually discovered and Joe was sentenced to a life in prison. Where he remains today? Joe is still in prison, yes. The house, though, is nothing is, has, hasn't been turned into anything. There's, still a, there's another caretaker that stays there with a brand new furnace, by the way. <laughs> so this is a private property. I just want everyone to know because it sounds – don't you kind of want to see it? Because it really is a beautiful house, but knowing all these stories, it's, it has a disturbing tenor to it. But um, you did not sneak off to Staten Island and research this one. No, I did not sneak off to Staten Island to see this house per se. However, not very far from there, if you happen to be in the neighborhood, there is a very notable graveyard that I want to mention very quickly. It's not a graveyard for humans, but rather a graveyard for ships. The Arthur Kill Shipyard at Rossville is very close by. It's on Arthur Kill Road. It's literally a graveyard for rotting ship husks. I went to this place a year ago. It's not open to the public, but you're able to, like, from, like, a certain area that's – you can actually see these humps of rotted boats. They look like dead animals, browned mm. with age. And the, the best part about it is that in order to, like, get to this part where you can at least see them without stepping on the private property – you have to walk through a small cemetery by the name of Blazing Star Cemetery for humans, an actual human cemetery filled with 18th and 19th century graves. Hmm. So from once you've walked past there, you can see the husks of these old ships, and they're very striking. They're very moving in a certain way and very scary. This is all what's cooking up in southern Staten Island. <laughs> And so we reached the end of our four haunted, haunted places, places of, of New, New York. York. <laughs> I, can, I can't do that for longer than like four words, Tom, without cracking up. Visit our 
website, BoweryBoysPodcast.com, where I will have old pictures of all the things in which we discuss, except I'm not sure if I'll be able to, like, find pictures of Captain Kidd's treasure. <laughs> but I will have Fort Wood, and I will have Bedloe Island, and other pictures of Kidd, of course, drawings. And maybe of Judy Garland at the palace. With her face pressed against the back door. It's always fun telling these stories with you, Greg. Well, we have a lot more spiced cider here and, and donuts, which I think we'll enjoy now. So have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.